Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. In the course of many of the conversations that we've had as part of this podcast series, we've raised time and again this concept that is core to Zionism called the New Jew. Many people think of Zionism primarily as a political revolution. The idea was we're going to create a Jewish state. And that is obviously critically important to Zionism. Herzl's book that lit the fires of Zionism, which was published in 1896, was called The Jewish State. Um, statehood was, for not all, but for most Zionists, always a major agenda of what the Zionist revolution was going to be about. But statehood was really only part of the story. Part of what the early Zionists and later Zionists as well wanted to do was not only to create a sovereign Jewish state, they actually wanted to change the Jew. They called it a new Jew. They were not at all hedgy about how distraught they were about what had become to the Jews of Eastern Europe. This is long before the Holocaust, but this image of Jews always looking over their shoulders at best and being attacked at worst and having relatively little ability to defend themselves uh, led to a kind of an explosion of a sense. Herzl said that we need to live in a place where we're not going to be pressured to assimilate. We need to live in a place where we're not going to experience anti-Semitism. Max Nordau spoke about Musseljudentum, muscular Jews. Uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik in his poem, The Ir HaHarega and the City of Slaughter, has a very painful scene uh, in which he describes this horrible pogrom and a graphic rape scene, which we won't go into. And the men are hiding behind casks as their wives and their daughters are being abused in the most horrible way. This is a theme that runs through lots of Zionist thought and even contemporary Israeli thought. When you hear every year on Yom HaShoah from the prime minister, it doesn't matter who the prime minister is, left or right, male or female, makes no difference. The prime minister always says something on Yom HaShoah like, if we had been a state then, that wouldn't have happened. And there is a sense that there's a kind of a new Jew who protects herself or himself, takes care of Jews in other places, which we've seen recently in the Ukraine, and so forth. Now, if you ask most people, has the new Jew idea been successful? Obviously, nothing is completely successful. But most people, I think, Israeli and non-Israeli alike, would say, yeah. I mean, look, you look at those black and white pictures of the survivors of the pogroms, and that's not what Jews look like today. Even after, God forbid, when there's an attack on the streets of Tel Aviv, what you see on the street is lots of armed young people, men and women in Mishmar Agvul, the border police and other units, going out there to hunt down the person who did this. In other words, we couldn't prevent every single death from occurring, but there's a sense that Jewish blood is not cheap anymore and you're going to pay a price. And there's a very different reaction, obviously, here in Israel than there was in, in Europe. So many people think that in lots of ways, the new Jew has been very successful. The new Jew is culturally creative in ways that would have been 
unimaginable just six, seven, eight decades ago. I always think when I walk into a Hebrew bookstore, an Israeli bookstore, and I see hundreds of linear feet of books in a language that just over 100 years ago, nobody spoke. Nobody really spoke that language. And everybody in the world who spoke that language could have fit into one of the hotels in Tel Aviv today, not an exaggeration, and they probably would have had their own room. In other words, we've transformed the Jews in many different kinds of ways. But I came across a piece on the Times of Israel uh, written by my friend and colleague Zev Magen, who we're going to introduce in just a second, who argues in a very provocative and I think compelling, disturbing way that the idea of the new Jew is not nearly as successful and whole as we ought to imagine. And he points to several dimensions of Israeli society, which suggest that this new Jew who's fearless and takes care of herself or himself it's not quite as ubiquitous as we might think. So I asked Professor Magim to join me in conversation today to talk about his piece. If you print out his piece in the Times of Israel, you're going to need 35 sides of a page of pages. So it's a long piece. We're going to distill it into a, a conversation, which might be easier for some people. But I do urge you to read the piece if you have the time, because it's really he writes brilliantly and it's very worth the read. Um, so we're going to start talking with Zev in a minute. Zev Magen is the author of a, a very well-known popular book in English called John Lennon and the Jews, A Philosophical Rampage. Uh, that's his title, uh, published by Toby Press in 2015. He's also the author of several academic books. He speaks, among other languages, Arabic, Hebrew, Persian, Russian, and English, professor of Arabic literature and Islamic history, and chairman of the Department of Midi Studies at Bar Ilan University. He also serves as a senior fellow at Shalem College, where I work, and he was really the creator and founder of our Arabic language program at Shalem, which is, I say this objectively, without question, the best Arabic language program in the country. Um, and he is also a fellow at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies. So a highly accomplished person, a deeply thoughtful person, a fabulous writer. Um, Zev, thank you very much for taking the time to chat today. And uh, let's dive in. You point to what you say is a serious problem, and you begin by talking, for example, about Tel Aviv University. Tell us a little bit about Tel Aviv University. What's the problem? And it's not only Tel Aviv. We'll see other examples in a few minutes. Let's understand what the problem is. Well, the last thing in the world that I want to do is belittle the new Jew. It was a fantastic achievement. Uh, probably unprecedented in the annals of human history. Uh, I was exposed to the new Jew uh, for the first time when I was in fifth grade. I uh, attended the Solomon Schechter Day School in Philadelphia, PA. And every year the principal would get us together uh, in the auditorium and tell us about the two rules. We had to learn them by heart so that we could recite them in our sleep. Uh, and the two rules were, first of all, you do not leave campus because we were in a very bad neighborhood, Winfield, Philadelphia, Irish neighborhood. Uh, uh, nobody there liked us very much. They used to throw pennies at us. They would, the, the teachers would make a kind of a gauntlet so that we could walk from the school bus into uh, the, the campus without getting molested. 
be that as it may, rule number two was that if you left the campus grounds by accident and you were accosted by any of the local boys and they called you names or even beat you up or stole something from you, of course you did not try to fight back. You headed as fast as you could back to the teacher and reported what had taken place. And for many years, that's what happened. In fifth grade, in came this weird looking kid who's first of all, we noticed his, his shirt was unbuttoned down to his belly button, down to his puffic. All of our shirts were buttoned up to the neck, you know. Um, and he was wearing sandals, which is something that only girls did. And we didn't understand what this creature was. It turned out to be the first Israeli we had ever met. And to make a long story short, uh, we got friendly with him. I learned Hebrew from him. And one day we were having this philosophical conversation during recess, um, and we were so into it that we didn't notice we had left campus. And the way that we uh, discovered uh, our transgression was by banging into this wall of Irish kids. And they saw that one of my friends had a new Twistoflex watch, and they asked the kid what time it was and grabbed the watch and put it in their pocket. David didn't even give us the dignity uh, of running away. And we, of course, did what we had been trained to do as good Jews. And we turned around to walk back to the teacher and, you know, and weep our eyes out. Um, and as we were walking back, we noticed there were only three of us. Where was Iran? And we turned around and we saw a scene that has never left my mind. Two of those Irish kids were already flat out on the street. The third one was, was ingesting Aaron's foot. He was doing some kind of a Taekwondo move. And the fourth one was running down the street as fast as his legs could carry him, you know, yelling that the Jews had gone crazy. And Aaron came back and, you know, Billy Jack style, uh, dusted his, dusted off his, his, you know, his shoulders, his shirt, and he gave the watch back to my friend. And, you know, it's not that we had never seen this on TV, but we had never seen a Jew do this before. And this, this was, this was one of the things that led to me, you know, making Aliyah years later, moving to Israel, where, by the way, Unlike Philadelphia, where I grew up, if a Jewish mother, you know, if, if, if one of the kids uh, behind walking, if her child walking behind her fell down and started to cry, of course, she would get a geschrei like there was no tomorrow and run back and, you know, caresses and kisses and poor little boo-boo and everything. If, if you come to Israel to this day in Hodasharon, where I live, I see it every day. You know, a mother will be walking down the sidewalk and her kid will fall down. And even if he's bawling his eyes out, she doesn't turn around. And she just says, kum, which means get up. And this is, a, this is quite the achievement. Um, but things uh, are changing. And they're changing for a lot of reasons. And one of them is the impact of modern Western progressive notions that civilized societies need to eschew violence in every way, shape, or form, uh, including, of course, verbal violence, even written violence. And this is really filtered and percolated into Israeli society. Uh, and it, it, we see this in many places, but 
with us, it's much more problematic because we're surrounded by neighbors um, who have not been infected by the progressive bug, uh, whose civilization still, whose culture still uh, has concepts like honor um, and is very physical and is very violent. And the, as we make ourselves less and less violent, and this, you know, this begins in the, in the kindergartens and, and it goes all the way up, as you said, to, to, to the university. And there was a demonstration at Tel Aviv University about um, uh, two or three months ago um, in which uh, a large number of Arab students and a few of their Jewish left, leftist uh, colleagues brought Palestinian flags for the first time, I believe, in Israeli history to this mainstay of Israeli higher education. And they, they demonstrated there. And I, uh, a, I think it was Jew, on Nakba Day, if I'm not mistaken, right? Wasn't it on the... the yes, day? probably. Uh, probably it was on the day of what the Arabs call the disaster, i.e. the Nakba, the 1948 war. Um, and uh, a, a Jewish female alumnus, middle-aged lady who had seen this and gotten upset about it from her apartment across the street, brought an Israeli flag. Over and she started to wave it back and forth and, you know, make her own little personal protest. And she got, she was called a lot, a lot of very, very bad names in a lot of languages. Um, but she went on dancing. And finally, one of the Arab students jumped her and grabbed her by the shoulder, by the midriff, uh, grabbed the flag out of her hand and threw it on the ground. And you hear in the background you know, some of the Jewish students um, saying, take your hands off her, don't touch her, leave her alone. But nobody interferes. And she was wrestled to the ground until the riot police actually showed up 30 seconds later and separated the two. Now, if, if the situation had been reversed, if a, a Jewish man had manhandled uh, a young Arab lady or a middle-aged Arab lady or an old Arab lady or any Arab lady, you can be sure that the hand that he used uh, to touch their Muslim sister would have been mangled beyond recognition and he would have been beaten to a bloody pulp regardless of the consequences that would have ensued for uh, the attackers. Now, you wrote uh, in your article, Zev, that in, on, Tel Aviv, on Tel Aviv University campus, there were students who actually resorted to Zoom rather than coming to campus for fear of being assaulted. Was that as a result of this? Or was that yes, after, after this incident, there were reports. And in fact, I was told by uh, uh, students and even colleagues uh, at Tel Aviv University that the uh, atmosphere there uh, was becoming one that frightened Jews. Now, the fact that the idea that Jews should be frightened in, I mean, you can't, you can't get any more central than Tel Aviv University. And the fact that Jewish students in the Jewish state where we were supposed to come after 2000 years of depredations and, 
and and of you know huddling together next to the ruler so that we wouldn't be pogromed to death. And here we come back to our own country, and our students are afraid to go uh, to the campus. Uh, and 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 this is something that we find in other parts of the country as well. Uh, uh, I, I pointed out in the article something that it's not, I, I grant you, is not easy to talk about. Um, but uh, uh, I have a student who runs a water park uh, 30 minutes from Tel Aviv. And I said to him, hey, you know, I'd like to, to bring my family up to the water park for a day of fun in the sun. And he said, well, I don't recommend it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the clientele at the water park has shifted over the past five years from 80% Jewish to 80% Arab. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, the Arab kids are rowdy and violent and the Jewish kids and their parents and their schools are afraid. And because of that, the entire water park now serves primarily the Arab population. Uh, this is not true just of that water park. Now, this is, this is a situation that you not only can't the authorities do anything about it, you, you can barely talk about it because it's politically incorrect to talk about because it could be interpreted as racism to talk about it, but it's a fact of life and a social game changer. And it is a microcosm that can be analogized to the macrocosm of the Negev in the south, of the Galilee in the north, where all types of protection rackets and Jews being beaten up and lynchings almost and then carjackings and whatnot are slowly causing a flight of Jews from those areas to the comparatively safer center. So um, I want to just to, just to put a, a finer point on it. If Zionism was about the return to the land, what you're describing now is the flight from the land. And I just want to, but you know, uh, just make one quick point about the water park thing before we come back to the Negev and the Galil, which is critically important. Um, you know, you said that the young man at the water park, who's your student, who recommended that you not go with your kids, said that this is a a phenomenon of the last five years or so. I mean, I can tell you. I never thought about it this way until I read your article, but uh, my kids are in their 30s. So we have not taken our kids to water parks in you know, a very, very long time, uh, 15 years, 17 years, whatever it is. But I remember already in Israel, there came a point when I, we were thinking about what are we gonna do on this day off or that day off, and we would think about a water park, and we would think about Sachna, which is a well-known national park that has a natural spring and a place to swim. There came a certain point where we just sort of said to ourselves, nah, and I never really thought about why we wouldn't go until I read your article a decade and a half later. It was not pleasant. It was not, it was, you were nervous. You never got to really just relax the way you want to relax when you take your kids out for a day. So I think that um, these, these are really critically important things. And I've actually experienced it even a decade and a half ago. It's not the last five years. It's been going on for a much longer time gradually. Um, and the, not going to a water park is, is, is not the end of the world. It's not a good thing, but it's not the end of the world. What happened on Tel Aviv's campus is much more problematic. If Jewish students are going on Zoom because they're afraid to go to campus, that's insane.
But what's going on in the Galil and the Negev, which I interrupted you about what you're talking about, I want to hear you talk about more. People just need to understand what this is all about. I mean, again, this notion of returning to the land is turned into flight from the land. Jews are moving out of these places. Um, tell us more about it. Well, you know, it, it begins not with the issue of violence, but long before that with the fact that Jews in Israel who were originally supposed to fill out the wide bottom of the labor pyramid and kind of, you know, get back to all of this physical physical labor, this manual labor, this uh, plowing the land, uh, all those kinds of things that really were at fundamental uh, transformations that Zionism brought about. Well, when you look at what happened to them, that the old Jewish ways of, you know, that, that evidently sunk into our DNA over 2,000 years of exile have come back, and we end up preferring to be indoors, to be up in our skyscrapers, to be on the internet, uh, you know, breathing perfumed air, Okay, what uh, I want to do is here. I want to read what you wrote. What you wrote here, because your language here is so compelling and so beautifully done, and frankly, so provocative. So I'm just going to read the paragraph that you talk about this from your piece. I know it's quoting you now. Zionism emphasized, quote, back to the land, end quote, quote, Hebrew labor, end quote, and Aaron David Gordon's imperative to open a new count with nature. Now that we are quote back home and no longer had a huddle behind closed doors for fear of the surrounding Gentile population as we did in exile. In flagrant betrayal of all this, Jews in today's Israel are mostly found indoors, breathing pump perfumed air and working and playing on the internet in their skyscraper offices and apartments, far from the earth and from physicality, whereas their Arab cousins are mostly outdoors, breathing the air of the land of Israel, working its fields and frolicking in the ponds, their muscles straining and getting stronger as they move our freight, prune our trees, collect our trash, and produce our food. I mean, you go on a lot more after that, but it's, it's just so compellingly written. Now, we're going to talk about the solution to all of this in a separate part of the conversation, but um, so we're not going to do that now. But there is a way, though, in which this is actually, of course, a byproduct of success, right? In other words, um, the grandchildren of the people who plowed the land are more secure, are wealthier, can travel the world, can uh, afford experiences that their grandparents couldn't afford. And part of that life is, you know, taking the elevator up in your skyscraper and coming back down at the end of the day and hopping into your Audi or your whatever, um, and going to, you know, Ramat Aviv Gimel or wherever you happen to live. I mean, so part of it is a success, no? Yeah, well, one of the things that I tried very hard to argue in this piece is that the success breeds failure. Uh, the higher the level of civilization, the more that we rely on proxies uh, and on superior firepower in order to hold down the population that is becoming physically stronger and that is very irredentist and secessionist and really wants us out of here. And so what happens is if you've got 200 or 500 or 1,000 Arabs coming out onto the street to demonstrate or to riot, 
instead of 200 or 500 or 1,000 of their Jewish compatriots coming down out of their uh, buildings and houses and confronting this Arab mass on equal terms and basically looking them in the eyes and saying, we're just as tough as you, if not tougher. And that really is what we were for many, many years. Right? Instead of that happening, if, if that were to happen, not only would things calm down, but there would be a, a, a sense of mutual respect eventually. There would be some skirmishes at the beginning, but eventually this meeting on equal terms and, and seeing that the Jews do not need to resort to high technology, you know, all of those uh, trucks with their fire hoses that remind us of Selma, Alabama, and, you know, the billy clubs and the riot gear. By the way, many, many of those uh, uh, trucks and whatnot manned by Arabs themselves. In other words, if you look back at the Roman Empire at the end, the, the, the use of barbarians, and I'm not making a comparison, just using the terms that the, the Romans did, the use of barbarians to protect the borders of Rome from barbarians. And one of the phenomena that anyone who lives in Israel knows about is that more and more often, not just in the army, but at the country club, uh, at the hospital, at, the, uh, at your, your ch children's school, even at Independence Day celebrations, Arabs are guarding us against Arabs. And that is a, that's a situation. And, and the Jews, when the Arabs are coming out on the street, they prefer to go up into their high rises and close the doors and the windows like we did in the Pale of Settlement when there was a pogrom and leave it to the enforcement arms to take care of it. But this doesn't work because the enforcement arms can't be there most of the time. Jews are getting beaten up, you know, when there are no police around all over the place. We have uh, videos of, of uh, I think, uh, the most famous uh, of the genre is uh, Israel's fiercest general, Rechavam Ze'evi, um, whose grandson became religious and uh, there's a video of him from maybe four or five months ago on his way to the western wall to pray and he's set upon by five or six young arabs who knock him down and kick him repeatedly and you know throw his hat across the way and stomp on top of him and then they move on and more arabs come by and jump on top of him and he doesn't try to fight back at all. And when it's finally over, he just gets up and he picks up his book slowly and looks around for his hat. And this, you know, when I saw that, I said, this is the, the grandson of Rechavam Ze'evi who put the fear of God into Syrian and Egyptian soldiers, uh, you know, in quite a few wars. It is a little symbolic of what's going on here. And it does lead to an exodus of Jews from the Galilee and from the Negev. 
And once you've got that exodus and you've got a majority of Arabs in the Galilee and the Negev, and we are Democrats, we're not, you know, a, a dictatorship like uh, Syria, then eventually we're going to have a hard time refusing the demand for self-determination from the people who live in those areas. And that'll be the end. Explain that to me one more time. In other words, we're going to have trouble refusing the demand for self-determination. I mean, Arabs in the Negev and the Galilee, that sort of well, thing. What, what I'm trying to say is that there's this sense that, um, you know, the first world civilizations have that you leave it to the enforcement arms, leave it to the police, leave it to the army and give them the kind of technology necessary, and they'll be able to keep the masses at bay. But what really happens is that they can do that at certain times and in certain places. And even that is problematic because it looks terrible and it, and it, it reeks of weakness because you have to hand over uh, the, the, the patrol of your streets to official agencies as opposed to going out and just confronting your neighbors and on, on, on equal terms. But what, it, what, event, what eventually happens is since these agencies, these enforcement arms can't be everywhere all the time, in fact, they can barely be anywhere most of the time. So life is made much more uncomfortable for the Jewish citizens in the North and in the South. And eventually they start to move out. But when they move out, eventually when there are so many Arabs in those areas, because we're so civil, civilized and democratic and liberal, how long can we say no to people who, let's say, make up 60% or 70% of the residents of a particular area when they ask for self-determination? How long can we say no? We, if we want to maintain the state of Israel, we have to maintain a Jewish presence in all of the state of Israel. If we want to maintain a Jewish presence in all of the state of Israel, the Jews that are there have to be as tough on, 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 a, on a physical level, on a daily quotidian level as their Arab neighbors. Now, I don't, I, I don't mean that they have to be... Uh, barbarians. I don't mean that they have to uh, behave in, in some kind, you know, in some kind of a, a boorish fashion. I think it's possible if you, if, if you circumvent all of the propaganda of, of, of modern day progressivism that tells you that you can't be both enlightened and tough at the same time, because enlightened people eschew violence of any kind. And therefore, even the wrong word is looked at today as hurtful. Well, that's just not the way our neighbors live. That's not the way they think. And people who find words hurtful and who need to go and heal themselves or go to a safe space or, I don't know, go into therapy because of something they read or something they heard, right, let alone some act of actual physical violence, are not going to be able to stand up 
to a culture that is still brutal and, uh, and, and very physically oriented. Okay, now there's a lot of things that you've said here that I'm sure some of our listeners are just having trouble swallowing because to call another culture brutal is part of what we don't do in the Western world. Um, I'm not critiquing you. I'm just, you know, sort of trying to intuit where I think some listeners are right now. And we're going to talk in the second half of our conversation more about what you think really needs to change in Israeli society educationally and other ways. We'll come back to that. I just want to remind people that we did an interview um, a few months ago, maybe a little bit longer, with Yoel Zilberman, who's the founder of Ashomer Hadash, And Yoel Zilberman founded this organization of young kids actually patrolling areas where the police can't get to, uh, because, as he tells it, his father's own farm and vineyard was being lost to Arabs who were taking protection money. And his father told his kids, you know, I'm just going to get out of this business because I can't, I can't make a living. I have to pay so much protection money. The farm can't sustain me. Um, it's just over. And Yoel, who was just getting out of the army from an elite unit, said, that's just not the way this is going to go down. This is going to go down in a very different way. And he took, I think, also an Israeli flag and a stack of books and a little tent and a gun. Um, and he started sleeping out on the edge of his father's yard or field or whatever it was. And um, people got a very clear message. And then he realized that if he can save his father's farm, but the police couldn't, if he could get tens and then dozens and then hundreds of young kids to both learn Jewish stuff and read Aleph Dalet Gordon and read Max Nordau and read Herzl, but in the evenings and the afternoons, wherever, patrol uh, to eat, sometimes in partnership with the police, sometimes some people think not in partnership with the police, we'll just leave it that way. Um, he, he's changed the reality for hundreds of Israeli farmers who have now not lost their land. But as you point out, there are huge swaths of the Negev and the Galilee that are still being lost because of the Shemar Hadash also can't take this on. And it's not become really a, a national conversation. Our listeners who heard um, Chikli, Amichai Chikli, who uh, was in the Knesset, is in the Knesset, and maybe coming back to the Knesset, uh, he spoke very openly that he felt that the, the Netanyahu government and the Bennett government both had been abject failures in terms of trying to protect uh, the Galilee and the Negev. So I just want to make it clear to people who are listening uh, that what Professor Magen is saying here is not Professor Magen's, you know, singular perspective here. We've heard other people talk about this as well. It's a well-known problem that is not eliciting national discourse. Everybody knows it's going on uh, and nobody really wants to talk about it because it's very hard to talk about it, as he said, in ways that sound politically correct, in ways that sound non-offensive, in ways that sound non-racist. Very hard to figure out what the language is. Um, and you've put it out there for us to think about. So we're going to wrap up this part of the conversation now. And in our the next half of our conversation, which we'll, up, we'll upload at a different time, uh, we want to hear more about your sense of what we can do. How should our kids be educated? What has to change about Israeli society? Uh, can it really happen? We're going to pick all that up with our next conversation uh, and stop this one here. So thank you very much, Zev, for putting this out there, for writing the piece, and for sharing your thoughts with us. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.